Chapter 5 of Old Bradbrim into the Heart of Australia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Old Bradbrim into the Heart of Australia by St. George Henry Rathborn. Chapter 5 In the Wake of a Mystery. Old Bradbrim did not let the woman's warning deprive him of the society of his friend and some hours later he emerged from the house with the thousand and one lights of London before him. Drying his collar up, for the night was cool and a brisk wind was coming in over the waters of the Thames, he started back, intending to walk to a cab station in the immediate neighborhood and from there take a cab. London was well filled, from what the detective could see, and some of its inhabitants were in the same condition. Every now and then he was jostled by a drunken man or woman, and in some instances almost crowded off the narrow sidewalk. Presently he was clutched by a hand and forced into the mouth of an alley. "'Don't talk, for it's all right,' said a voice which he thought he recognized. "'I followed you, and I hope I've done no wrong, sir. The man is still watching you, sir. I hung on to the back of the cab, sir, and got a good jolting over the stones. But I'm here, sir, to tell you that you're still in peril.' It was the same warning woman— and her face was the very picture of starvation. "'Where is he?' asked old Broadbrim. "'You can't see him from here, sir, but he's across the way near the star and garter over there. If you look very sharp, you may see a man in the shadow of the place. That's him.' "'What is he like?' "'He's a tall, slim fellow, with the keenest eyes you ever saw in a human head. But those eyes mean mischief and death. "'And you?' "'Oh, sir, I'm Mag of the Dust Hole.' I'm out for victims, but I saw him watching you, and I couldn't help wanting to spoil his game. You don't know him, then? I know him, and that's why I want to bring his schemes to naught. It's Jem. Jem the Sydneyite. I have no such enemy by that name. Maybe not. But he's watching you all the same. He used to live in Sydney, Australia, and the detective started. In Australia? broke in old Broadbrim. Yes, yes. He came back from there a year ago and has been lording it over some people in London ever since. He's cool-headed, and has the softest fingers you ever saw. Jem's a bad one. I don't doubt it. I'll see to him. The detective pushed toward the mouth of the alley, and with a cry the woman fled. It was a strange proceeding on her part, but the detective did not think anything of it. Almost directly across the street stood a small, old-fashioned tap-house called the Star and Garter. It was like many others of its class in London, disreputable from the ground up, and he looked at it trying to make out the figure of his enemy. Half-screened himself by the shadows of the building at the opening of the alley, old Broadbrim used his eyes to advantage, and presently made out a form across the street. It moved. Standing still, he watched it saunter off, and at last it came toward the alley on the same side. The spy was coming to investigate, and the detective made ready for the meeting. The figure of the spy was tall and agile. It came along the sidewalk and seemed about to pounce down upon the American tracker with the greatest ease. Old Broadbrim held his breath. At the very mouth of the alley, the spy stopped and looked into the darkness. He did not stir for ten seconds. Gone, I guess, Old Broadbrim heard him say. It's too bad. I wonder if the cat warned him. If she did, I'll throttle her and leave her in the cellar. With an oath the man withdrew, 
and in another moment the detective heard his receding footsteps. He was saved. Old Broadbrim waited a while, and then slipped down the street. He had eluded the spy, and now, perhaps, could get a better look at him. But in this he was doomed to disappointment, for the fellow vanished too quickly for him, and he turned at last and went to the lodging he had selected. He thought of Rufus Redmond, or Merle McRae, who was on the high sea bound for Australia. He recalled every incident in the crime in New York and thought of his work so far. The trail was growing longer. It stretched across the great deep to a land still unknown in part to the world. He recalled a letter from Perth and knew that beyond that faraway town lay the deserts of West Australia and the wild tribes and wilder animals. But he slept at last and in the morning awoke refreshed. He was at breakfast in a little chop house near the inn when someone came in and took a seat beside him. He looked and saw that it was Owens, the Scotland Yarder. I have news for you, cried Owens. There's a steamer going to sail for Sydney this afternoon. Old Broadbrim gave utterance to an exclamation of joy. I don't think they really want any passengers, for it is a private expedition conducted by Lord Harway, but you might see him. I'll do that and if money or finesse will get me a berth on the vessel, I am off today. Old Broadbrim finished his breakfast in a jiffy, and before the hour ended he stood in Lord Harway's private office. The story he told, one not connected with a chase after a murderer, enlisted his lordship's sympathies, and at the close of it, the detective was told that he could have a berth on board the yacht Maybloom, one of the fastest vessels of the kind afloat. Once more he was in luck, and there was some hope of beating Merle McRae to Melbourne. Old Broadbrim had few preparations to make, and by the time he was through, the yacht was ready to sail. As he stepped aboard, he glanced toward the dock and caught sight of a figure that startled him. It was the man of the previous night, the spy who had tracked him to the mouth of the alley. He had not abandoned the chase, but had tracked him to the yacht and knew that he was bound for Australia. Old Broadbrim, however, did not hesitate. He went quietly to the little room assigned to him and shut himself in. He had taken passage under the name of Logan Lane, and as such was known to Lord Harway. In a little while he heard his name called in the corridor beyond his door, and upon going out he found his lordship there. "'We are off,' said the Englishman with delight. "'The Maybloom is cutting the water like a knife, and I want you to come up on deck and look at her.' Old Broadbrim ascended to the main deck and looked at the receding city. Lord Harway handed him his glass, and the detective put it to his eager eyes. He scanned the crowds on the pier, and suddenly found the man he had seen on two occasions within the past twenty-four hours. He was looking at the yacht with expressions of chagrin, and the detective could see that he was bitterly disappointed. He had escaped him, and when he thought of the threat he had breathed against Mag at the dust hole, he feared for her safety. As long as he held the glass to his eyes, he could see the man watching the Maybloom, and at last he turned away confident that he had outwitted Merle McRae's spy. Now the ocean lay before him, and in a few days he would be in Sydney, ready for the task before him. Old Broadbrim found the occupants of the yacht the best of companions, and at times his conscience rebelled against the deception he was playing, but he promised himself that some day he would explain all to Lord Harway and beg his pardon. The Maybloom proved to be a splendid sailor, and day after day was passed on deck. It was a long voyage, and one without incident to our old friend the detective. When at last the headland of Australia hove in sight, 
there was some stir on board, and the Maybloom came to anchor in the spacious harbor. They had passed several vessels bound different ways on the high seas, but, so far as the detective could make out, none of these was the intrepid. Merle McRae was ahead of him, and he did not expect to beat him to Melbourne. In Sydney, old Bradbrim went at once to the hotel and put up. He changed his garments and washed, and then came out on the street to find out when he could get a vessel to Melbourne. Luck favored him again, and he learned that early the following morning he could take passage in a coaster for the capital of Victoria. The day was spent in looking around Sydney and passing the time as best he could. Old Bradbrim was soon up the next day and went on board the coaster in which he had secured passage. In Melbourne, he was direct to the house of the chief of police, but that official was not in the city. Old Bradbrim went back to the wharf and stood watching a splendid vessel just coming in. Something seemed to thrill him while he watched the craft, which majestically rode the waves, and all at once he uttered a little exclamation of joy. It was the intrepid. After all, he had beaten his quarry to Melbourne. Merle McRae, thanks to an accident to the vessel in mid-ocean, as old Bradbrim afterward learned, was delayed, and he now came in a little behind time, but in time for him to spot his man. Well concealed, he watched the passengers as they came over the planks to the pier, and every one was closely scrutinized. "'What's become of him?' cried old Bradbrim, as the last one stepped upon the quay. "'Did the ocean get him? Have I lost my man and justice her prey?' He was nonplussed, for no one answering the description of the Cunarder's passenger— had landed from the intrepid in Melbourne. But he's there. I'll bet my head on it, said old Bradbrim as he turned away. End of chapter 5 He's a tall, slim fellow with the keenest eyes you ever saw in a human head.